If you got your Bible, and I would suggest you follow along, um, please follow along. Um, and uh, this is in Romans chapter 9. Uh, this is our third installment of our lesson, God Chooses. We'll finish this up today and, and pick up next week again with Genesis 26. So, why are we in Romans 9? Um, well, in Genesis 25, we, uh, we came across this uh, passage talking about Rebekah, where it says, The children struggled within her, so she went to the inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now, I said last week, there's really two questions here that we have to ask and answer. First of all, is God just predicting what will happen, or is He choosing or ordaining what will happen? And if He is choosing what will happen, then what is it that influences His, his choice? Now, the reason we're in Romans 9 is because Romans 9 answers those questions. So in Romans 9, Paul is, is dealing with the problem, and I'm just going to review this very quickly. Paul is dealing with the problem um, of the Jews being lost, accursed, cut off from God because of their unbelief. He will tell us in Romans 9 and Romans 10 that they're, they're lost because they tried to find righteousness in works and not through, um, not through faith. So the, the problem he's dealing with is this, and, and this is how... He, he basically says it, has the word of God failed the Jews? In other words, has his assurances and his promises to Israel, have they failed? And that's important for us because if they failed them, then how do we know they won't fail us? Now, his answer to that question is in, is in Romans 9, 6. He says, no, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And this is his reasoning for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, Paul wants to show that there's this group called the Jews, and they all share the same DNA, the same ethnicity, they all come from the same man, which is Abraham. And he refers to them as children of the flesh. But then he talks about a subgroup, a group within a group, that he calls children of the promise. And he says, that's the true Israel. It's not just because you come from the loins of the same uh, forefather, it's, it's, it's because of it's a, it's a spiritual inheritance, and he calls them the children of promise, and they are the true Israel. Now, to back that up, he uses Genesis 25 and the story of Jacob and Esau as to validate that. Okay, Look at verses 10 and 11. He said this, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born, and they had done nothing, either good or bad. Now, Paul chooses the example of Jacob and Esau for a very specific reason. Because he wants to show that you can't... It's not human differences that are driving or influencing God's choice. You remember last week we talked about he uses Isaac and Ishmael, but somebody could say, well, Ishmael's a half-breed. His mama was a Gentile. That's why God chose Isaac. And so, so Paul says, okay, let me give you this other example. Same mama, same daddy, same womb, same DNA. They're twins. And, by the way, he did it before they'd done anything good or bad. So he's removing any human differences 
that would force God to choose one or the other. In other words, what he's trying to get to is to tell us the choice is unconditional. Now, why would God do it that way? Why would God choose children of the promise unconditionally? Well, Paul answered that question in verse 12. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now, before we move on, I want to point out two things about that verse, okay? Here's the first thing. Have you ever noticed in Paul's letters that he always, when he's contrasting works with something, he always does it with faith? Everybody with me? I mean, this is very common in Paul's letters. Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from works. Romans 9.32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. Galatians 2.16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith. Other writers do it too. James does it. Peter does it. Whenever they're talking about works, they always contrast that with what? Faith. Faith and works. Faith and works. Faith and works. But here... Paul does not do that. He, he doesn't... We would almost expect him to say, not because of works, but because of what? Faith. But he doesn't do that. He says it's not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Now, why would he do that? You see, in those other verses where he does faith and works, he's always talking about justification. He's always talking about salvation. He's always talking about those things. And by the way, faith is... A, a prerequisite for justification. Those things do depend on faith. But in this passage, he's not talking about uh, justification. He's not talking about righteousness. He's talking about choosing. He's talking about election. And the reason he doesn't say because of faith is because faith is not a condition of being chosen by God. Let me say that again because some people that will shock you. Faith is not a condition of being chosen by God. Justification <clears throat> is conditional. For you to be saved, you must put your faith in Jesus Christ. That is absolute. But being chosen by God doesn't depend on that. It's unconditional. It is only based on one thing, and that is Him who calls. I mean, that is very important. See, the fact is, is that before we can believe on Jesus Christ, we must be chosen and we must be called. God doesn't choose us because we believe. He chooses us so that we can believe. He chooses us so that we will believe. By the way, I'm not just pulling out of thin air. This is what the Bible teaches. Look at Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says this, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. Everybody see that? Now, how does God bring that about? Through sanctification by spirit and belief in the truth. In other words, God chooses you first, and then he, bring, he uses your faith in the truth to bring that about. That's what Paul is saying in, in Thessalonica. So God's choosing of Jacob over Esau is not because of their disposition, it's not because of their attitude, it's not because of anything they're going to do in the future, it's not because of their parents, it's not because of their faith, it's not because of any of that. It is absolutely unconditional. Now, at this point... We need to ask a question. Could this passage of Scripture in Romans 9 mean something else besides the fact that God is choosing some to be saved 
and not choosing others. Could it mean something else? Well, some people would say, yes, it does. I'm going to give you an example. This is, by, this is a, a statement by Dr. Rick Flanders. He is the pastor of First Baptist Church of Bridgeport, Connecticut. This is what he says about this passage. He says, but notice that the passage is not talking about Jacob's eternal salvation or Esau's salvation or damnation. It is about God's choice in the makeup of the Messianic and Israelite lines. In other words, what he's saying is it's not about people, it's about nations. That God is choosing nations, not people. Okay? And, and, and you can go Google his name, Rick Flanders, and you can read the whole thing, and, and he'll explain all that to you. Now, there are four reasons that I completely disagree with that. Okay? Now, I, I got a lot of respect for him. He's a doctor. He's, he's, he's smarter than I am. But here's the problem. See, years ago, if you would have come to me, I had read Romans 9, and I had no idea what it meant. If you'd have asked me, is God choosing people to be saved I, before the foundation of the world, I'd have said no. That's not, that, that ain't, then if you just said, well, what does it mean? Well, I got no clue. <laughs> I don't know what it means, but it doesn't mean that. Are you with me? See, if you, get, if you get set in your mind, that's not what it means, then you'll look for other things. And I'm afraid that's what a lot of people are doing, is they're looking for other explanations. So Dr. Flanders says it refers to nations. Well, there's four reasons I don't agree with that. Here's number one. First of all, it is people, not nations, who are accursed and cut off from Christ. Right? That's what Paul's already told us in that verse. Number two, Paul tells us clearly, clearly, that he's talking about people, not nations. Look at Romans 9, 8. He says, this means it's not the children of the flesh who are of what? The children of God. That's people. That's individuals that he's talking about. Okay, so he's already told us that. Number three, okay, this is my third reason. It's not fair. Now, let me explain what I mean by that just real quickly. For the sake of argument, let's say that we agree with Dr. Flanders. Let's just say that God in chapter, that Paul in chapter 9 is talking about God choosing nations, which, by the way, God does do. I'm not saying God doesn't choose nations. He does do that. Job 12.23 says this, He makes nations rise and he fall. He builds up some and he abandons others. So absolutely God chooses nations. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. I'm just saying that's not what Romans 9 is about. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, for one minute, that he's right. That God, he's, that, that chapter is about God choosing some nations and not choosing others. Now, does anybody find that unjust or unfair that God chooses some nations and not others? Does anybody find that even re remotely controversial? Anybody? I don't. You know, we, we say all the time, well, how many people probably in this country believe that God chose America? Yes? Does anybody find that controversial or un... No. Nobody... That's not a big deal to us, okay? See, but if we accept that Paul is talking about people, that God chooses people and not chooses others, then what's the first... What's the first thing that pops into our mind? What is it? That's not fair. That, that is the first thing that just jumps out at us. That's not fair. Now, I want you to watch what Paul writes. Romans 9, 11 to 14. 
In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Verse 14, what shall we say to that then? Is God unfair? Do y'all see what he's doing? He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knows exactly what you're going to say. See, I, I said it last week. Paul isn't just sitting down and writing this for the first time. He's preached this in synagogues all across the Mediterranean. In Thessalonica and Galatians and Corinth and, and Philippi and Jerusalem. And he's heard it all. He's heard all these objections. And the main objection he's heard is that's not fair. So, and by the way, to me that only makes sense if he's talking about individuals. So what Paul has is, is done is he's just go ahead, he, he's just gone ahead and, and answered the objection or brought the objection up because he's heard it so many times. And see, to me, that tells me we're on the right path. If Paul is dealing with the, object, the objection that I've got in my heart and my mind, then it, I'm probably on the right path of what I think it really means. So here's where we currently stand when we left off last week with Romans 9. God unconditionally chooses to save some, to become children of promise, to become children of God, while not choosing others, and we don't think that's fair. Can we agree on that? We, we don't agree, think that's fair. Now, let's go back to our question. And this is where it gets so good, and I feel so privileged to be able to stand up here today and, and, and talk about some of these things. Why would God do it that way? Why would God do it that way? Well, this is Paul's answer. Remember, this is, this is the answer to Paul, that Paul's saying, in order that, for the purpose of, so that, he's letting us know his answer, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. Now, I want you to just... I'm going to leave that up for just a second. I want you to feel the weight of that sentence. Just feel the weight of that sentence. God is doing... I mean, see, the fact is, when God sometimes in the Bible will pull back a curtain, so to speak, and He'll let us see the reasoning behind why He does things. And when we do that, listen, we are, we are seeing something that, that angels want to know that the prophets of old wanted to know about, and we get to know it. It is an unbelievable thing to know these ultimate realities about God and about who He is. So what does Paul mean by God's purpose of election? Well, let me tell you, I don't have a clue. I'm not a, I don't, you expect me to read God's mind and interpret that for you? I have no clue what that means. The only thing you and I can do is let Scripture interpret Scripture. So let's look at a, a couple of other places where Paul talks about God's purpose. This is his letter to Timothy. By the way, the biggest problem that Dr. Flanders has is he can say, he can handle Romans 9 and say, well, it means this, but my question is, what about these other Scriptures? What about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Here's one. This is in Paul's letter to Timothy. He says this, who saved who? Us. I circled that for you. He's not talking about nations here. He's talking about us. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of what? His own purpose and grace, 
which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Let's read that again because that is an awe-inspiring Scripture, is it not? Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before you were born, before the world was created, before time began, He already gave that to you. Here's another one, Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according, here's that word again, the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. Now, both of those verses talk about the purpose of God. So what do we learn from those two passages? Well, we actually learn six things. There are six things that Paul brings out here about the purpose of God or the purpose of election from these verses. Number one, God's purpose is eternal. Before You saw those words, before the ages began, predestined. In other words, God, He doesn't get down to the line and think, you know, boy, Susie, she didn't turn out the way I thought she was. I'm just going to change. No, He had already determined before the ages began to extend His grace to, to Susie. His purpose is eternal. It doesn't change by nature or technology or culture or, or the weather or anything like that. It existed before the ages began. Number two, His purpose is linked with salvation and grace. Paul says, who saved us because of His own purpose and grace. So what we know about this purpose, it's a purpose to choose. It's a purpose to call. It's a purpose to save. And it's a purpose to do that through grace, not works. Number three, it completely rules out works. Paul says what this purpose has to do with, it's got nothing to do with works. His own purpose is the basis of our salvation, not anything that we do. Number four, it's based on himself. Paul says his purpose is according to the counsel of his will. You know, when God needs advice, you know who he asks? Himself. <laughs> it's the counsel. He doesn't come to you. He doesn't come to anybody. He just, he, he, it's his own counsel. His purposes are all contained within him. It's not based on anything outside of himself. Nothing. It's all self-contained, which is mind-blowing when you really think about it. Number five, and this is my favorite, it's always been about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages become, began. You see, it's always been through Jesus and for Jesus and by Jesus and about Jesus' glory and Jesus' praise. Like Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things, which includes our salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read these verses, I get chill bumps. Can you feel, when, you, when you're just talking about these things and you're just talking about God and how awesome He is and how great He is and how His purposes are eternal, and it's all, do you not feel it in the room? Do you not? I hope you do. I hope you do, because that, by the way, this is what it's all designed for. Number six, its end of His purpose is always His glory. 
That's what, that's what Paul said. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of what? His glory. You see, His glory is what His purpose is all about. You want to know what God's doing, what His plan is, what His purpose is? Its end is His glory. To bring glory to Him. Not glory to you, not glory to me, not glory to this church, not glory to any to Him. In fact, let me go a little bit further. I can even fine-tune that glory for you. This is Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of what? His glorious grace. See, when it all comes down, you want to know what God's purpose of election is? That says it right there. It's all about the praise of His glorious grace. Isn't that awesome? The praise of His glorious grace. So that His grace is seen as awesome. His grace is seen as glorious. So that His grace gets all the praise. Not our works. Not even our faith. Not anything we do. His grace. That's what God's purposes are all about. I got two scriptures for you here. By the way, this is, you're going to see in a minute, this is all over the Bible. It's everywhere. This is a, one of my favorites. So before I get there, just keep this in mind. You got all these big things and fancy terms, election, predestination, calling, redemption, justification, salvation. Let me tell you, it all for, exists for one thing. For the praise of the glory of His amazing grace. That's what it's all about. You, we can argue and we can debate and we can do all that, but I can tell you one thing we can agree on, I hope. It's all to the praise of His glorious grace. It's all to the praise of His glorious grace. Exodus 33. Moses comes to God. He says, God, show me your glory. Show me how glorious you are. God says, okay, Moses, I'm going to do three things for you. Number one, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you. That's the first thing I'm going to do. Number two, I'm going to proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am that I am. Number three, now remember Moses' question, show me your glory. God says, you want to know my glory? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. In other words, my glory is showing grace. That's part. And so if we take away grace, we take away His glory. The ability to be able to show grace to whom He wants to is part of what makes Him God. You take that away from Him, you don't have a picture of God anymore. Paul says this in Romans eleven five through 6, Even so... At this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Here's the thing about grace. Grace, you, you, it can't be 99% God and 1% you. It can't even be 99.9% .9 God and 0.1% you. If there's any of your works in your salvation at all, then grace is no longer grace, and you've stolen His glory. 
It has to be all about Him. Why does God choose you before the foundation of the world? That way it's all about Him and nothing about you. Why does He choose Jacob over Esau before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad? Because then it's all about Him and it's got nothing to do with those boys. That's why He does it, so His grace gets all the glory and all the praise. Now that's awesome. How can you not help feeling that's good? But there's just this one nagging little thing that just won't go away. It's not fair. It, it just That just nags. Yes or no? I hope you feel like me. It's just this nagging little thing, but that's not fair. We're talking about people's eternal destinies. How can that be fair? Now, I'm going to read you what Paul says. This is Paul... By the way, remember verse 14. Look at it right there in your, if you've got your Bible open. Paul says, is there injustice with God? Is God not fair? This is Paul's answer to that. He keeps going. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Okay? Now, I want to say to Paul, Paul, stop. <laughs> Just stop, Paul. Don't, don't write anything else. Don't make... My brain's already exploding here. Right? I'm already struggling with this thing that you're teaching me here. Just stop, Paul. But Paul doesn't stop. He keeps going. This is what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I just read you this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends only on God who has mercy. Okay? Now again, Paul, can you please stop right there? Please don't go any further. But Paul just keeps going. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul says this, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, well, Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? And this is Paul's answer. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you... How dare you, Paul says. How dare you answer back to God? Can the clay say to the, to the potter, why did you make me this way? Who do you think you are? I don't know. When you read this, Paul is saying, basically comparing us to a piece of clay. You're just a piece of clay. God can do anything He wants to do. That, see, to, when you read Romans and God gets greater and greater and greater and greater, and we go down, 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 because it's to the praise of His glorious grace over and over and over again. Now, I mentioned earlier, there are four reasons I disagree with Dr. Flanders. Dr. Flanders says that Romans 9 is about God choosing nations, not people. And I disagree with it. I gave you three reasons. Here's the fourth reason. And this is one of the reasons that I, I, don't, I don't know what Dr. Flanders does with this. See, I've already showed you it's not just Romans 9 where this is taught. We've already looked at uh, 2 Timothy 1.9. We looked at Ephesians 1. I showed you Exodus 33. I read from Romans 11. But let me tell you, this is all over the Bible. L let's read a few scriptures. This is Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, talking to the people of Israel. It says, The Lord your God 
has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, we all know this one, I knew you. By the way, that's got nothing to do with knowledge of who he is and what he's going to do. God knows everybody that way. God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything about me. He knows the hairs on my head, doesn't he? The Bible tells us that's got nothing to do with that. He's saying, I knew you. I had a relationship with you. I chose you as one of my own. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart, and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Let's go into the New Testament. Matthew 1.12 She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Who's his people? It's not the Jews. It's not the Jews. He's not saving the Jews from their sins. Who's he saving? Us. His people. The elect. The chosen. That's who he's saving. John 15, 16, Jesus said, You didn't choose me, I chose you. Matthew 22, 14, Many are called, everybody's called. But what? Only a few are chosen. John 1, 12 through 13, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of flesh, nor of the will of the flesh, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 3, 7 through 8, Jesus goes, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus says, man, you must be born again. Uh, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he goes on to say this, Do not marvel, Nicodemus, that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming and where it's going, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You, you can't make it happen. You, you can't organize it and, and contain it. It, it. When somebody's born again, the Spirit comes in and bam! You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going next. That's, that's exactly what he's saying. It's a God thing, not a man thing. John 10, 25 to 26, Jesus answered them, I told you, he's talking to the Jews, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you don't believe because you are not among my sheep. Look at that very closely. Jesus says, you're not, it's not, you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. You don't believe because you don't belong to me. You don't believe because you're not chosen. So John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never cast out. See, for you to be one of... You, to you to come to Jesus, you have to be given to Him by the Father. And all that the Father gives will come. John six thirty nine, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up, on the last day. John eight forty seven. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Whoever, does everybody see that? Whoever is of God, you belong to God, you are of Him, 
If you are of Him, then you hear the words. The reason you don't hear is you're not of God. He's not saying you, you, you're not of, you, you, the reason you're not of God is because you don't hear. He said, no, you don't hear because you're not of God. Mark 13, 20, Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom He chose. Matthew 24, 31, And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His chosen from the four winds. We move into Acts, Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has, what? Granted repentance. You cannot repent without God granting that to you. That's not something you just do on your own. God has to grant that. He has to give that to you. Acts 16, 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. What would have happened to Lydia if God hadn't opened her heart? Absolutely nothing. She would have just went on with her life, been an unbeliever. But God opened her heart. Acts twenty-two, twelve through 14 Then a certain Ananias, a devout man, came to me, and he stood out and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you, that you should know his will, and see the just one, and hear the voice of his mouth. Galatians 1.15, Paul, writing to the church at Galatia a few years later, says this, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and then he called me by his grace. Everybody see the order there? Paul is set apart before he's born. Before he's done anything good or bad, he's already set apart. It just took a few years for God to say, Okay, on that road to Damascus, I choose, it's, it's now. I call you right now. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. How did he do that? By the word of truth. In other words, God is, think about what all these verses are saying. God has chosen you before the foundation of the world, before the ages began. And, and he says, okay, and, and, and this date, 1963 or 1958 or 1934 or whenever it is, that person's going to be born, but I've already chosen them. And you're born, and you're born into sin. You're born spiritually dead, according to Ephesians. You have no interest in God. You don't really want God. And somewhere along the line, He does something. He calls you. He opens up your heart to hear the Word of God, and you choose Him. But you were chosen in Him way before that. That's what all these verses are teaching. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. What is not your own doing? Being saved through faith. Being saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that nobody can boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand a long time ago. He'd already prepared that you were going to get saved and you are going to walk in good works. He did that, not you. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6, Paul writes and says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. By the way, how many here were unbelievers at one point? Okay, that's you. That's you. You were blind. The enemy, the devil, Satan, the God of this world had blinded you so you could not see how beautiful and glorious and great and awesome that Jesus was. What changed? What changed? Why did one day when you were 50 years old or 14 years old or 70 years old that somehow or another the light come on? Well, Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You're just going through life, blind as a bat, dead as a doornail spiritually. And then one day God steps in and He opens your heart and He shines a light and you see Jesus in a way you never saw Him before and He is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And you step out in faith and you trust Him. But God did that, not you. It's not because you're smart or or better looking or brought up better or more intelligent or any of that. Just God. God did that. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. Who calls you to be born again? He did that. He did that. He was just working His purpose, working His plan. 1 John 4.19 This is one of my favorite. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. Why do I love Him? Because He loved me first. Revelation 17, 14, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. It's all. You can start in the, in, in the book of Matthew, you can work all the way to Revolution, Revelation, and it's everywhere you, you look. Now, I want to close with this. I've got about six minutes. Why is this good news? You see, the fact is, for many of us, this teaching or this doctrine that God is is choosing us before we're born, before the foundation of the world, it's difficult to understand. But one of the problems we have is it's so different from what we grew up with that not only do we have a hard time believing it, we have a hard time believing it's good news. As I said, do you hear this on TV? No. Nobody's going to teach this on TV. You're not going to open church growth manuals and there it is. Nobody's going to do that. But yet it's all over the Bible. Why do we we stray away from it? Why don't we want to teach how glorious God is? Because it's hard. We feel like, man, it's just just not fair. And it's just, we struggle with it. But one of the really things we struggle with is believing it's good news. So I want to give you four reasons this morning before we close why it's good news. Number one, it's good news because God gets all the glory. Let me tell you, one of the deepest corruptions that you and I have inherited from the fall and from the sin is we have lost the realization that joy and peace and contentment can be found anywhere other than God. We try to find it in being praised ourselves. We try to find it in our careers. We try to find it in our family. We try to find it in our hobbies. We try to find it in community. We try to find it in all these other places. But we were made for one thing. And that is to praise His glorious grace. That's what we were made for. 
And we're, that, that is what's going to bring you joy and peace and contentment. All the things you spend your life searching for is found in Him. See, it's why we were made. That's, that's to, to praise His glorious grace. And the doctrine of election is designed for that. Not the doctrine of election, that's just teaching. Election, God's choosing, is designed for that purpose, to bring praise to His glorious grace. It preserves God's grace at every point in our salvation. We can never point to anything and say, God didn't do that, I did it. No, no, He did it, every single step. It forces us to finally admit it's got nothing to do with me. It's all about God. Therefore, it has to be good news. It has to be. Number two, the assurance that comes out of this is massive. I can almost tell you, I've struggled with this. I can tell you, everybody in this room, at one point, you struggle with knowing whether you're truly saved. Yes or no? Be honest. It all goes through your mind. Listen, when you're doing good, man, I'm, I'm saved. When you're doing bad, what's wrong with me? Maybe I'm not really... Come on. Yes? No? Everybody does. Let me tell you, if you can get a hold of this, that you're saved because of Him who calls, it's got nothing to do with you. Should I get out and walk worthy of the calling? Absolutely. Should I do my best to obey Him and walk in the Spirit? Absolutely. Am I going to fail every single day? Absolutely. Every single day. I don't want to go up and down and up and down. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? I'm saved because He chose me. The assurance of that is massive. How can that be anything other than good news? A couple of scriptures, by the way, I'll throw out at you. Romans 4.16, Paul says that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be... Can I tell you all something? When God guarantees it, this ain't like the car company. This ain't like buying a washing machine. When God guarantees your salvation, it is an absolute guarantee. How can He guarantee my salvation? I can tell you, it ain't got nothing to do with me. Because I'm pitiful. I mean pitiful. I'm not disciplined enough. I don't have faith enough. I'm, I don't pray enough. I don't read my Bible enough. I don't do, I don't do anything enough. I'm pitiful. But I can get up every morning, every morning, and go back to the Scripture and says it rests on grace unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. He just did it because He's God. I don't know why He did it, but He chose me. John 6, 39, Jesus says, You want to know what the will of God is? This is the will of the Father. This is the will of the Son, I mean of the Father, who sent me that I should lose nothing. That's the will of God, that everyone the Father has given to Him, He will lose not a single one. You don't have to worry about it. The assurance behind that is just massive. That's why understanding you're chosen by God is, is such a big deal. One more, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. One more time. There it is. Why does God do it this way? Why can He guarantee it? Because it all points back to Him and nothing, it ain't got nothing to do with you. It's to the praise of His glory. One more. I don't remember how many I did here. 
Jesus saves. Let me ask you a question. How many of you in here are praying for somebody in your life, in your family, to get saved? Okay? Now, here's my question. Do you really believe God can save them? Or do you only really believe that, well, God can convict them of their sin? God can, can maybe bring somebody into their life to witness to them. God can, can put them in a situation where they, they need... Are y'all see where I'm heading? Do, do you just, if you only believe those things, then the final choice is left with your loved one. See, in the end, God can't actually save them. He can, he can put them in a situation where like, you hope they might choose Him. But you don't really believe, if that's all you believe God can do, you don't really believe God can save. But I'm telling you, the doctrine of election says it's up to God. Jesus can save. And let me tell you, that is nothing but good news. I don't care how hard that loved one is. I don't care how cold they are. I don't care how sinful they are. God can break in there and shine that light and open their heart and bam, it's a done deal. Hallelujah, absolutely. That is good news. This ain't some wishy-washy, fuzzy God. Jesus saves. And here's the last one, and kind of goes along with that. This means anybody can be saved. There's nobody too hard. There's nobody too cold. There's nobody too sinful. If they're chosen, it's going to happen. And we can preach the gospel with that in mind. We can call them to repent. We can call people to believe, knowing that God is going to bring that to pass. It doesn't matter how long they've been without Him. It doesn't matter if they're 75 or 80 years old. God can do what He has purposed to do. All right, we're done with that subject. How many of y'all spent time thinking about that this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you did. I spent six months fretting over it. Anyway, next week we turn to Genesis 26 and we get back into our, uh, our Genesis study. I felt like this was important. As I said, this wasn't something that I just went off into because I wanted to. Paul referenced Genesis 25. He tells us what Genesis 25 means, and that's why we spent uh, the last couple weeks in this. But next week we get back to Genesis 26. Let's pray. Father.